Hey everybody, welcome to the Single Tracks Podcast. My name is Jeff, and today I'm going to be talking with Daniel Jesse about bikepacking. So Daniel is the manager for the outdoor programs and outreach at REI here in Atlanta, and he spends his spare time scouting prime bikepacking routes all over the southeast. Daniel and I first met while volunteering with our local bike club, and Aaron recently completed the Cahuticat bikepacking route, which Daniel created. Thanks for joining us, Daniel. Yeah, thanks for having me. So when did you take your first bikepacking trip? My first bikepacking trip was my first race, which was on the Highland Trail Race in Scotland uh, in Ooh. May 2013. Oh, wow. So how, what made you decide to do that race in particular? Well, about a year and a half before that, I'd been training for the Colorado Trail Race, which I thought would be my first bikepacking race. And I was actually hit by a car outside Atlanta and uh, had a pretty bad uh, injury. So oh. it took me about a year to get back on the bike and get back to the level that I could compete. And so that was kind of my kind of return to adventure, you know, it was uh, going and doing the, the inaugural race in Scotland. So Wow, nice. How was that? Did you enjoy it? I hated every minute of it while I was there uh, until I crossed the finish line. And then I've been addicted to mountain biking in Scotland since. Wow. That's awesome. Addicted to bikepacking in Scotland. So you've been back, I guess. I've been back once. Yeah. I did the Cairn Gorms loop last year. Oh, wow. How long is that one? That one's 180 miles. Nice. That's awesome. Did you ever get back to Colorado to do the Colorado Trail? I haven't done the Colorado Trail yet. I did a road bike tour um, about the, actually the same year I got hurt, but uh, I haven't been able to go back and do a mountain bike tour. Was it still on your radars as something you want to do? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Cool. So what do you find so appealing about bikepacking? What got you interested and what keeps you interested in doing it? Well, I've, I've always been into long distance uh, adventures. So whether it's uh, cross country in high school running or rowing a lot in college, oh, it was a rower in college. So we did a lot of yards of practice in yeah. college. And Sounds like you like to suffer. There was a lot of suffering. So I've definitely got a high pain threshold. Um, and, uh, you know, so I, I've also always been into backpacking and really just, you know, what I found that I loved is just seeing as much terrain as I could in, you know, a fairly short period of time. And, you know, a lot of times I found that I was able to cover a very long distance on my feet and, you know, just moving fairly fast. And I'd be able to see a lot of terrain and, you know, the same amount of time that it would take people to cover half the terrain. And then I got into biking a lot more and found that I could see three times as much terrain in the same amount of time. And so, um, you know, it was just a natural progression where I went from just endurance running and hiking and backpacking and just started strapping it all to my bike. That's cool. You know, you said you started out backpacking. Do you, are you doing less backpacking now? Like is bikepacking more your preferred mode of transport? I find that backpacking has become almost too easy to me. I mean, huh. the backpack, it's a lot easier to get all the stuff you need in there. And walking is a little bit less complicated hmm. um, than trying to navigate some technical terrain. Right. So I think right now I'm just really appreciating the challenge that bikepacking still offers. Um, I'm sure I'll go back to backpacking someday. Interesting. So tell us about the Eastern Divide Project. This is something that you've worked with along with a lot of collaborators. What's the goal with that? Well, first of all, I've got to give huge credit to all the other collaborators, Brett Davidson, Carlos Rodriguez, Kim Morell, and Chris Tompkins up in Virginia, and, and a number of other uh, route creators all up and down the eastern seaboard. But, you know, the, the idea is just that there's a ton of trail, there's a ton of dirt on the eastern seaboard, and we think that we can create a, a mostly dirt route very similar to the uh, Great Divide Mountain Bike Route in the west um, on the east coast. And so it's really just looking at maps and what 
is already on the ground with the uh, AML 400 and the Trans North Georgia, the Trans Western North Carolina, a number of other routes. And really, it, you know, it, we started feel, realizing that it, it wouldn't be that hard to link all these together. And so, you know, we're, we're just working to try and find a, a way to hit as much dirt as we can. And right now, the idea is to go from Nova Scotia to Key West. Wow. That's incredible. How much of that have you personally ridden? I mean, a very small amount, you know, I mean, Trans-North Georgia and some stuff in Western Carolina, but, you know, there's still a lot of the stuff I have not personally ridden. Yeah. It sounds like a huge project and something that, you know, is obviously going to take years to complete. So what are some of the milestones that people are working on to make this happen? I think right now is is trying to uh, figure out what the corridor is. Um, you know, I think that especially in Western Carolina and Virginia and West Virginia, there's a lot of options. And I think that one of the first pieces of kind of a direction that it could go is the Trans-Western North Carolina that was released last year. And so that's one route where it's going east of Asheville through the Linville Gorge area and Mount Mitchell. And, and that's one where, you know, it could go that way and it'd be a lot more single track. Mm-hmm. But the other argument is you could go to the West and have more of like a gravel road, gravel grinder, a little bit more similar to the Tour Divide. So, hmm. you know, I think right now it's just people playing with the route and trying to figure out what the best overall flow. And and I think that we're not sure what the character of the route is yet. Yeah. So I think that that will be a key is once everybody's kind of aligned with what the true character of the route should be. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that'll help us to figure out what those final pieces should be. Yeah. Well, and with a route so long like that, it's going to have a lot of variety to it as well. I mean, Nova Scotia and Key West are pretty different. So I imagine the character is going to sort of change as you go along the route. Yeah, absolutely. And there'll probably be chunks of it that get released at different times. And, and kind of your to your point, I think that some of those chunks will uh, have their own character. And, you know, somebody might choose to ride one section of it based on what they know of that section versus trying to ride the whole thing because it's maybe they're not technical mountain bikers. But as you said, there, there will be sections of it uh, that are not that technical and they could choose to ride that section and kind of treat it like a kind of like a section hike. Yeah. Interesting. One of the sections or potential sections, I guess, is the Southern Highlands Traverse, which is an official, semi-official route uh, that was recently created and released to the public. Can you talk a little bit about that route? I had no hand in creating the Southern Highlands Traverse. Um, I, I want to give a huge kudos to um, Brett Davidson, Logan Watts, and uh, a few of the other guys, uh, TJ Kearns, who really helped to put a lot of that stuff together. And there's there's dozens of other riders that I haven't personally met, but I know of that have contributed to the building of that route. But, you know, the idea behind that is honestly probably one of the gnarliest, most wild routes that you can possibly conceive and, and just predominantly single track. And I think that going back to what we were talking about, about the character of the Eastern Divide, that's where we're starting to see two characters come to life where you've got mm-hmm. just the gnarly, rooty, rocky East Coast single track. And then you've still got tons of gravel roads and rail trails and things like that too. And so I think that people are realizing that we can create multiple routes along the way as opposed to just gravel or just single track or, mm-hmm. or a 50-50 mix that you can really have independent routes to cater to each rider's particular desires. Yeah. That's really awesome. So what are some of the challenges uh, that you see, at least, in creating the Eastern Divide route? What are some of the things that make it more difficult maybe than doing this out West even? 
there's a lot more dirt roads out west. Um, it's it's a lot easier to link things together. And and at the same time, there's massive wilderness areas out west that cause you to have to go long, long ways around. And um, I think here you're probably going to run into pavement more than you're going to run into wilderness areas. Yeah. So, you know, I think that probably the, the biggest challenge will just be trying to find creative legal ways to get it off of pavement as much as possible. I mean, it's it's very easy to drop out of the, the mountains and, and hit some pavement for a while. Mm-hmm. Um, but just trying to make sure that you preserve that mountain bike character, I think will be one of the hardest things. Yeah. What about wilderness areas too? I feel like there are a lot of those, you know, small ones, but they're hard to route around, uh, especially here on the East coast. Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, the good news is that it's, it's not that hard to go around them. Um, you know, I mean, the Cahuta wilderness being the biggest wilderness area east of the Mississippi and, you know, it's, if you consider riding, if you were to ride a trail across it versus going around it like we do in the Cat, I mean, you're probably extra 20 miles, you know, so uh, not that big of a deal. So as long as there's a road that goes around it, you know, it's not that bad. And I think one of the nice things about wilderness areas too, is that usually they're bounded by a gravel road. Mm. And so like in Linville Gorge, you know, there's a gravel road right along the rim. So you kind of get all the views uh, that you would get in the wilderness area. And, you know, the only thing that makes it different from the experience of a hiker 20 feet away on a trail is that you're on a, you know, obviously man-made gravel road as opposed to just a little single track path. Yeah. Huh. So that's interesting. Have you found that there are people that are interested in promoting this, like boards of tourism or people like that? Do do you see any support from outside of the bike community for something like this? I personally have not run into anybody in particular with the Eastern Divide Project. The people that I've talked to with the Cahutta Cat have been very excited about the idea of having more, you know, tourists coming in and you know, especially adventure tourists. Um, you know, the uh, there's several cafes along the Cahutta Cat route that are super excited to have us come through. And they're always asking about, you know, all the stuff we're carrying and how the route's going and things like that. And same with Trans North Georgia. You see a few businesses really come out in full force to support that community whenever it comes through. So I, I think that the, the it's there, the interest is there. Mm-hmm. And really, I think the more interesting parallel is what you've seen in a lot of small towns with various types of recreation, not necessarily bikepacking, but mm-hmm. for example, what Columbus has done with blowing up dams on the Chattahoochee and having Class 6 Whitewater going through downtown and the whole city is super stoked about that. And I think that there's other small towns too uh, in Georgia that have just opened up little river trails in the middle of their downtown and they're yeah. you know 20 times smaller than Columbus, but they're buying in on this outdoor recreation tourism concept. Mm -hmm. And I think that when you get this route legitimized, like the Great Divide mountain bike route, I think that you will see a lot more interest in people catering to the riders and Mm -hmm. helping to, you know, preserve the route. And I think that that's my personal hope is that a lot of these bikepacking routes can become a little bit more legitimized where the Forest Service and state parks and all the public lands that these touch will recognize that this is a valuable route for the community Mm -hmm. and will hopefully, you know, keep that in mind whenever they're making long-term management decisions. Yeah. Well, what's your guess? How far out are we from having the first Eastern Divide race along the route? There are people asking constantly about <laughs> when the first Grand Depart's going to be <laughs> on any given section of it. So rough guess. I mean, I think it's just going to depend on how quickly we get it mapped. I think that somebody could probably hop in a camper van or a fully loaded bike and could probably come up with a route within two months if huh. they really yeah. wanted to commit to it. Yeah. And and after that, you know, I would I'd say two to three years, I could easily see some grand depart starting in Canada and heading down towards the the beautiful keys. Yeah. That so, would be awesome. Yeah. 
How many miles do you think it would be? Once oh, it's, it's going to be at least 4,000 miles. 4,000 miles. Yeah. And the Great Divide is, what, 2,800? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Something like that. So this would definitely be a big, big trail. Yeah. You talked a little bit earlier about the Cahutta Cat, and that's a bikepacking route that you created a couple years ago. How long has it been around? Started piecing it together about three years ago, and uh, we, yeah, we had our second official Grand Depart last year. How long is the route? It's 290 miles. Okay. Yeah. So what was sort of your inspiration for creating that? Georgia already has the Trans-North Georgia and yeah. Penhody Trail. So what was the inspiration behind the Cahutta Cat? Twofold. I say, I think, first of all, I was just riding and training a lot. And, you know, we've always had the Fool's Gold 100 near Dahlonega. Right. And we used to, you know, always have the Cahutta 100 and before that, the Cahutta Death March. And, you know, I looked at a map and I'm like, there's a way to get through here, you know, (laughs) we've got to find a way. So I was just intrigued by the idea of trying to link these two 100 mile off-road routes up. And then also, you know, Trans-Nerjores is a fantastic route. Mm -hmm. But very difficult. It is very difficult. At the same time, you know, um, Cahutacat, became difficult because I found that there's really no way to make an easy bikepacking route right. in Georgia. But my initial goal was that I knew Trans-North Georgia was difficult and I thought, well, hey, why don't we try to come up with a route that's, you know, maybe a little bit technically easier, um, you know, is definitely gives you options to cut it into pieces. And, you know, I did achieve that with Cahutta Cat where it's kind of a figure eight. So you can, you know, just do one section of it, the Eastern loop or the Western loop. And the Western loop is definitely the harder of the two loops. And it's a little bit longer, a little bit bigger climbs, a little bit more technical single track. And then the Eastern loop is not super technical at all. It's uh, got a little bit more pavement and a little bit more resupply. So, yeah. That's awesome. Yeah, I know we really enjoyed Aaron's race report from that. Um, He did a whole podcast episode while he was in the race so he's recording i definitely enjoyed that as yeah. well yeah it sounded like a blast i was really jealous yeah. it seems like something i would maybe enjoy i don't know bikepacking it's, it's a bit of a suffer fest it's definitely type two fun <laughs> for the kahuta cat there is the grand depart which you do in the fall mm-hmm. is that right but then are people riding this at different times of the year are you hearing from people who've who've tried the route on their own yeah, um, I'll get emails from people, uh, you know, every so often throughout the year, um, you know, maybe one or two every other month, just asking for information and are telling me that they're going to go give it a go. And, you know, I'll get an email from Kate at Mulberry Gap letting me know that they've got another rider heading out. And to be honest, most of the people who have tried to, to bite it off on their own have not mm-hmm. finished. Um, really? Yeah, I think a lot of them don't know exactly what they're getting into in the Southern Appalachians. You know, some of them also have just had things come up at the last second and haven't been able to do it. So there's definitely interest there. I've been, I've actually been really surprised with how broad the interest has been. Yeah. How'd you come up with the name? Um, so there's this wild cat at Mulberry Gap. Um, it's uh, one, of the, one of the many animals that live there at the getaway. And this cat can be really sweet. Uh, I mean, like he'll just you know, rub up on your legs and purr and roll over for you to pet him. And so super sweet. And then, you know, next thing you know, he'll be watching you from the rafters, just ready to pounce. And I've got several friends who have real stories of this cat attacking them as they walked from, you know, their cabin to the dining hall. So that's kind of what the 
the cat route became was, you know, you'll be just peacefully wandering along next to a stream and just thinking, man, this is so rad. And this, you know, this isn't that bad. And then you've got like a one mile hike bike up to the top of Fort mountain. And right. so it kind of just became this two faced, you know, little route. And since it went around the Cahutas, we, we thought that that was a fun, cheeky name that we could, we could call it. And, and, uh, Brett came up with the motto of don't get scratched. <laughs> yes. Nice. Yeah, and I love too how uh, part of the race is to bring a patch with a cat on it and then people get to pick which which patch they want once they finish. I'm actually surprised there are so many patches you can find with different cats on them. Never would have thought you could find that many patches that were completely different right. at all for cats. So, <laughs> Yeah, that's really cool. What is sort of your recommended time of year to tackle this? I know the race is in the fall. Summer seems like it'd be really tough, but winter, that might be doable, right? Yeah, I mean, I think that um, as long as it's dry in the winter, absolutely. Um, it, it's really a route you can ride year round. I think that if you were trying to plan a really enjoyable trip, I'd aim for you know probably late March, April, uh, or you know probably sometime October or into early November, um, just so you get the cooler weather on either of the shoulder seasons. Okay, that's great recommendation. So we're going to take a break real quick, but when we come back, we're going to talk about some of the challenges that people face when they first start bikepacking and also talk about some key pieces of bikepacking equipment that everyone needs. Stay tuned. You can't see me, but I'm wearing an awesome single tracks hat right now. It's actually the reason my voice sounds so amazing. Okay, so maybe not, but you never know until you get a hat for yourself. Go to shop.singletracks.com to find Singletracks hats, t-shirts, stickers, tubular headwear, and can coolers. Shipping is free within the USA, and your purchase helps support the Singletracks podcast. That's shop.singletracks.com, and thank you for your support. And we're back. Bikepacking is a relatively new thing, or I mean, I guess it's been around for a long time, but it's newly popular, and it seems like more and more people are getting into it. What are some of the biggest hangups that people have about getting started with bikepacking? What are some of the challenges people have? Well, I think the the first thing that um, people worry about is fitness um, and being able to haul a bike that's two or three times or four or five times heavier than it normally is up and over the mountains that they know exist out there. You know, people have that fitness concern. And and also at the same time, I think some people under, underestimate how much fitness that they need for, again, carrying a bike that heavy or just the difference in that. I think second to that is, is really just what kind of investment they need to make to get their bike ready to go. And people overestimate um, like how much money you need to spend to get ready for bikepacking. They overestimate. You yeah, I mean, I think that you can you can spend hundreds or a thousand dollars on you know custom made bikes, bike packing bags for for whatever type of mountain bike you happen to own. But I, I did my first bike packing overnight uh, with a backpack on, you mm-hmm. know, and um, so it, it wasn't that fun, um, you know. <laughs> but I mean, overall, the the event was really fun, or overall, the the little trip was fun, you know. I I started with that, and um, then I just tried to move from that into putting one more thing on my bike and you know one piece at a time 
So that's part of it is just thinking that you've got to buy a bunch of whole new stuff. And there's lots of articles out there now about uh, different kinds of, of recommended straps and accessories. And the cool thing is that there's been this huge boom in cottage industries around not just bikepacking bags, but small little accessories that allow you to modify bikes that weren't built for bikepacking. So, you know, just changing where your bottle mounts are, strapping things onto your bike wherever you have an empty space. And so, you know, you can really just take that weight and all the, the gear and move it around on your bike and try to find the right balance. So there's a lot of things you can do without spending a lot of money. Another thing that people think of, say, you have to have a bike packing specific bike or something really, you know, special. And <laughs> Right. We're, right. We're definitely seeing more of those yeah. companies are coming out with these bike packing rigs and just another bike you need, right? Yeah. I mean, and of course, you know, uh, there are several bikes that I would love to own, but at the same time, I, I'm kind of of the mindset I'd rather spend the money on traveling somewhere to do my bike packing than on the bike itself sometimes. So, you know, I think that if you've got, if you've got a place you want to go and the bike you have, regardless of if it's full suspension, road bike, cyclocross bike, whatever, if it can handle the terrain that you want to go on mm-hmm. without gear on it necessarily, then it, it'll be fine for bikepacking. You know, you can you can throw a backpack on, you know, you can uh, fit handlebar and seat post bags and almost any bike will handle handlebar and seat post bags. And then you can just figure out ways to put everything else uh, along the bike. And again, I mentioned the, the cottage industries. I mean, Revelate Designs, of course, was probably the first and most well-known uh, bikepacking bag manufacturer. And then we there's there's little cottage industries throughout the whole country. Um, you've got um, Rockgeist up in Asheville, and you've got the Spindle here in Atlanta that will be happy to make special bikepacking bags specifically for your bike. Right. Yeah, it sounds like a lot of it too is um, just getting out there and trying it. You yeah. know, I mean, you dial in your setup every time. I mean, I bet even you, you know, you're an experienced bike packer, but there are probably parts of your setup and your rig that you're not happy with. And you're still like, man, if I could just like dial this in a little better, it'd be even more fun. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I, I think, um, so I started bikepacking heavily in 2013 and I did a race last year. So it took me four years. It was the first time I ever felt like I had my kit totally dialed. I used everything in my bags and nothing else. Uh, I didn't need anything else and I didn't take anything extra. So yeah, that was the first time I felt like I got it right, but it took four years of doing regular bike pack trips to, to kind of dial it in. Yeah. Well, and how much of that was just luck though? I mean, were you prepared if it snowed or like something crazy happened? Actually, uh, I believe I was. Yes, yeah. I was actually pretty well prepared for just about anything. If it had gone, you know, sub zero, I would have been in trouble. But <laughs> beyond that, I was probably pretty good. Nice. Yeah. Well, yeah, you mentioned the cost aspect of it. And to a lot of people, that's what they're afraid of. Is it's going to be expensive to get the right bike and get the right gear and bags and stuff. But on the flip side, when you're bikepacking, you really don't have any expenses, right? You're not paying for a hotel. You're not buying expensive meals and restaurants, maybe the occasional convenience store or gas station. And then there's no need for like other entertainment during your trip. Like you're, you're riding the whole time. So it seems like one of those things where there's a, 
there's a bit of an upfront investment, but once you do, then that's kind of it, right? Yeah. I mean, certainly it could be that way. Um, you actually brought up another interesting point with staying at hotels or now with Airbnb and HipCamp, you know, you can find a pretty low cost alternative. And uh, there's another website called uh, Warm Showers where it's a whole network of touring cyclists throughout the world. And it's actually not that hard to find a free place to stay almost anywhere in the world with a cyclist. Um, so it's kind of cool because you can share your stories. But that's one way I'd recommend people try to get into bikepacking is like start with the basics of, you know, do you have just repair, like repair kits and like carrying just enough food for a day, maybe not dinner, but enough mm-hmm. food for a day and just try that. And instead of like trying to eke out, you know, 40, 50 miles to get back to your car or something like that, just do 10, 20 miles to a cool little town, you know, stay at an Airbnb, grab dinner. And yeah, you'll be, you might be spending a little bit more money on lodging, but then you haven't invested in a whole bunch of bags and everything like that, that you're not sure right. whether you're ever going to use again. So, yeah, that sounds Kind of like, you know, the European model of travel where you can like, you go from hostel to hostel or, you know, I've done, I've done hut to hut trips, uh, here, which that's to me, that's bikepacking light. That's more my speed where you can have a place to stay each night. You don't have to carry all your sleep equipment and that kind of thing. Yeah. But the idea of like being able to go, you know, day in and day out and still be on your own, I think that's a really good introduction. Helps you to build the fitness, uh, for being able to do that, uh, overnight. Yeah. Speaking of the fitness, what, what does that look like? Obviously you can't just like ride all day for a day and see how you do. Yeah. Um, and people don't have time to train necessarily to do a bunch of really long rides beforehand. What is sort of the, how do you know when you have that like minimum level of fitness to tackle a bike packing route? You don't, you know, um, and, uh, there's a lot of different schools of thought on how you train for a bike pack race. Um, you know, I, I Linda Wallenfels has done some, one of the best jobs of creating bike pack specific training regimens, uh, that are designed for a variety of different types of trails. So she's got one specifically for the Colorado trail, specifically for the Arizona trail or like a five to seven bike, five to seven day bike pack race. So you can get those, um, uh, on training peaks and you can, you know, have a little digital copy of that training plan. And, and that one I've done is, is really hard. And that, that one is the equivalent, I would say of Ironman training for bikepacking. You know, there's, there's other things that you can do where you're, you've, I've done a, um, pre-prepared training plan for a stage race for a mountain bike stage race with no intention of doing a stage race, Mm -hmm. but just doing a few days in a row of bikepacking. And that one was actually great because it was a little bit shorter, duration but higher intensity and then honestly the last few where i've felt the best i've actually done less specific training i've biked to work a lot um and i just uh, I, I call it functional training so actually like <laughs> going somewhere with crap all over my bike. So that's been really helpful for me. And then I would say that people need to study the route. I think that that's actually a very underrated form of training. You'll find that you're able to, to go a lot faster, feel a lot better in your mind when you know where you are hmm. and where, you go, where you're going, where you can get water, where you can get food. And so I think that I would encourage people to you know, spend at least 25% of their time studying the route or planning their route Um, just so that they're prepared for it as opposed to just kind of blindly training for tough things. Right. Interesting. Well, yeah, I mean, you said a lot of great stuff there. Um, And one of them that I want to circle back to is talking about expectations Mm -hmm. of bikepacking. So a lot of us, you know, that ride a lot, we, we know about how fast we can go and, you know, I can average 10 miles an hour or whatever. You need to adjust your expectations, right? I mean, you have all day to 
get from point A to point B. And it's not like, it's not like your normal mountain bike ride where you're like, Oh, I got to get back home in time for, you know, kids soccer game or something like you can take your time, right? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. You can take as much time as you want. Um, I, uh, I have a lot of, a lot of friends who, if they're doing uh, a race, a bikepacking race that, you know, their plan is to just go really slow and like sleep very minimally, you know, 30, 40 minutes at a time and, you know, get a little catnap and get back up and keep riding all through the night. I found that I've got to get a full night's sleep. Mm. Um, so I pretty much say, you know, nine or 10 o'clock. Uh, that's my goal is to try and find somewhere to sleep. Um, and then I make myself dinner, crawl in my sleeping bag and, you know, I'm not getting up much before dawn. But, um, I think that again, coming back to, you've got to just start bikepacking, even on little small rides and small races. Uh, it's the only way you're going to figure out what your needs are and what your expectations are. So, and again, studying the route, knowing that the next section is super climby and starting it at eight o'clock at night, if you're trying to finish by nine or 10 is not necessarily the best idea. Right. Well, in studying the route too, it seems like there are water stops along the way and, you know, convenience stores to buy food. You know, it seems like is part of that just a mental thing where you're like, you know, checkpoint to checkpoint. Do you find that that helps a lot with a tough bikepacking route? I really do. Yeah. I, um, so I, on my GPS device that I use, I actually write in my cues that actually say like next water, 20 miles or next water, next food or something like that. Um, and that really helps me to know, okay, like I can make another 20 miles. I don't have to pull out a map. I don't have to do the math. It just tells me right there how much farther I have to go. Right. Sounds like you rely on your GPS a lot. Have you ever had any issues with that? Fortunately, I have not. Um, I know plenty of people who have. I definitely always take two or three backups. I'm bad about not taking paper maps, but I know I should. Um, <laughs> but I definitely would say I encourage everybody to always have a paper map and or cues that will uh, help them to navigate in the event that all technology fails. <laughs> I always download the map on my phone um, so I don't have to have data. And then I really recommend having a good GPS and knowing how to use it well. Yeah. Yeah, you've never, never really been lost on the trail then, I guess. I no, actually, in bikepacking, I haven't really been lost. I've gone off trail, but I figured <laughs> out very quickly how to get back. It was usually just went straight past a turn, but I know how to work my GPS pretty well and read maps pretty well, so I've never had that problem. Huh, that's awesome. Yeah, um, now I'm going to get lost right. on my next race. Thank <laughs> Sorry you. Sorry to jinx you. <laughs> you mentioned that a lot of the bikepacking gear doesn't have to be expensive, but what are some key items that maybe are worth splurging on? It sounds like you're a big fan of a GPS, having a good, reliable one that's easy to use. Yeah. Are there other items like that where you, you don't mess around and you, you get the best? Well, actually, you know, like I said, I, I do recommend a GPS, but, um, you know, it depends where you're going. If you know the route really well from just tons of day riding, you don't necessarily need a GPS. Mm-hmm. Right. But I would say that if you're going to splurge on any equipment, I would say a seat post bag and a handlebar bag. And it, there are various different types that you know people have to kind of test out and see whether they like the way that it rides on their particular bike. But you know, I can't recommend one particular one over the other. But they're, they're not cheap. I mean, you're talking a $250, $300 investment for, for both. But to me, that's the first step to getting the weight off your back, which most bike packers will tell you should 
be a goal of yours. Right. Spending the money on that will allow you to just have a much more enjoyable time, carry the weight better, make sure it makes sure that the weight is balanced on your bike. If you have it between a handlebar bag and a seat post bag, if you have the space for a frame bag, I, I really, really recommend that. Um, again, it's getting that weight off of your back. Um, but my, my full frame bag, you know, it weighs the same as a backpack. So I actually just use it for normal everyday riding. Um, and that way I don't have to worry about having any of that weight on my back. Right. Do you, I mean, do you have anything on your bag? Do you have a camel back or anything, or you, you even have all the water on your bike and everything? I really try to get it all on my bike. It does depend on the route and the race. And sometimes the, the water is so far between that I need a camelback in addition to having bottles and things like that. Yeah. But, uh, and there's a lot of riders who wear a fairly, fairly substantial backpack just because that's what they're used to riding with. Mm-hmm. And so they like it. Um, and, or they need more space on their bike to carry uh, gear as opposed to water. Yeah. So. What about clothing? Are there any like key pieces of clothing that you have or, you know, really versatile stuff, I guess? It seems like that's sort of the name of the game to have something you can use for multiple situations. Yeah, yeah. I'm um, I'm always looking for stuff that I can use for a few different things. I mean, for example, like for me and the way my body works, if it's cold enough for me to have a vest on, it's cold enough for me to have a full rain jacket on. And so I just carry one ultralight rain jacket as opposed to having a vest and a rain jacket. And so that's one way that I kind of just cut down on superfluous things like that. Yeah, I mean, I think that you just got to kind of learn what you need and what you don't. Most bikepackers that I know don't carry two pairs of bike shorts, but I do because uh, I have some undercarriage issues sometimes. So, <laughs> right. yeah, I, I think probably the most important thing with bikepacking to consider if you had to think about like one thing to splurge on with, cl- with clothing is uh, bike shoes that you can hike oh, in. Right. Um, and a lot of bikepackers have gone to flats. I know a lot of regular mountain bikers are going back to flats now too, but mm-hmm. a lot of bikepackers are going to flats because they know they can hike the bike well. They know if they get off in town or something that they can walk around really easily. Um, you know, I, I use a bike shoe that was specifically designed for enduro and bike packing, so it walks really well um i've walked up to 10 miles in it with without a problem so yeah it sounds like there's a lot of hike a bike in bike packing which maybe people aren't ready for that too you know they might just imagine being on their bike all day well it totally depends on the route and the rider uh you know my kahuta cat route um is you know, it really only has one mandatory hike a bike, and that's only because of regulations for the forest in that area. Uh-huh. There's another part that almost everybody hikes, and when I asked my friend uh, about how what he thought of that hike a bike, he said, "What hike a bike?" <laughs> so, really? Yeah. So he he, he rode the to... whole thing. Wow, yeah. that's awesome. What about food? Do you bring like a full cook kit? Do you prefer that? Do you need a hot meal, or are you able to just you know? go on bars and energy gels for days on end in the bike packing that I've been involved in so far where I don't have to go, you know, five or six days between towns, I'm usually hitting a town at least once every other day. So I actually use it as a motivator to not take kind of real food. So I, I actually try to do cold food and usually don't have coffee when I'm actually on the, you know, camping out. And then yeah. as soon as I get to town though, I'm looking for like fried eggs and coffee and and as much real food as I can find. Um, and then I'm usually trying to strap like a Subway sandwich or, you know, a gas station burrito to my bag so that I can carry it with me into the woods for that dinner that night. So, um, yeah, so real food is actually a motivator for me. Um, but I know a lot of people who ride and, and they, they need that little comfort of knowing that they can make a warm meal at night and they can have a warm cup of coffee in the morning. For me, that's my, that's when I do luxury bike packing. So, <laughs> right. Cool. So do you have any big bikepacking trips planned for 2018? 
Uh, yeah, I'm, I'm really uh, hoping to do the cross Washington mountain bike route sometime in the fall. One of my friends, Troy Hopwood, made that route and it goes from the Olympic Peninsula, 700 miles out to the Idaho border through every kind of ecosystem you can imagine in Washington from the, obviously the rainforest on the uh, West Coast to the you know, high desert as you go cross over the Cascades. And, you know, Troy is actually uh, one of the guys I met doing bike packing and he, he lives in Washington, of course, and yeah. uh, we met doing the Stagecoach 400. And I think that that's really one of the coolest things about bikepacking is the people that you meet along the way. And um, you form, you know, more or less lifelong friendships, you know, in a fairly short period of time. And yeah. probably got more interesting stories to share with each other than you do with a lot of people you've known your whole life. So yeah. um, that's definitely something that will always keep me coming back to bikepacking. And, uh, and all the friends that I've got, you know, on, I've got friends from New Zealand to Scotland that uh, I've met through through bikepacking and it's just a really awesome family to be part of. Yeah. Well, that's, that brings up a good point because a lot of times when I think of bikepacking, I think of like riding by myself in the woods, you know, in the middle of nowhere. How often are you like sharing the trail with people, riding with them and sleeping out at night and all that stuff? How, how, how do you build community? I guess when everybody's in such a hurry to like get to the next checkpoint. Everybody's got their kind of different speeds, you know, and um, I, I've never met anybody in a bikepacking ride that doesn't want to ride with you for a few minutes and kind of see how your pace is even out. And I think most people are willing to slow down just a little bit or push themselves just a little bit to stay with somebody for a little while and just, you know, share the suffering because it's everybody's always complaining about something most of the time or talking about how beautiful the scenery is. It's always nice to share with somebody, but in the longer races, you know, you'll go two or three days without seeing anybody or, you know, not really getting to hang out with anybody. Uh, I did a 700 mile race in New Zealand last year called the Kiwi Brevet. And uh, I rode for the first, uh, you know, two or three days, really just passing people up and down, seeing a couple of the same faces over and over again, but never really riding with somebody. And then on the third day, I actually ended up riding uh, with a guy, Craig Moss, who we pretty much rode the whole rest of the route together. Just, oh, wow. uh, yeah, just kind of alternating who's leading and, uh, you know, who's who's drafting and all that kind of stuff. And, you know, it was really fun. And I made some lifelong friends through that as well. That's awesome. Cool. Well, thanks, Daniel. We appreciate you coming in and sharing your tips for bikepacking with us and some of your adventures. And definitely interested to hear more about the Cahutta Cat and all the great things you're doing to help build and promote bikepacking here on the East Coast. Thanks for having me. This has been great. Remember, if you're enjoying the Single Tracks podcast, be sure to rate us on iTunes and Google Play. That's all we've got this week. We'll talk to you again next week. Peace. Peace.